Welcome to the Filling the Pal podcast. My name is uh, Greg Ashman. In this episode, my guest is Jennifer Buckingham, Director of Strategy, uh, the Five from Five Project and Senior Research Fellow at Multilit. Welcome, Jen. Thank you, Greg. How are you? Good, thank you. Under circumstances, New South Wales is um, doing okay at the moment. So, um, you know, business as usual for, for the most part, um, just not socialising as usual really, no. <laughs> more than anything. Yeah, yeah, well, we're pretty locked down here. We're not quite as bad as Melbourne, um, but we have to wear our uh, masks everywhere and all that sort of business. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, and our kids, obviously my kids have gone back on remote learning, which is a bit unfortunate, particularly for the year 12s. But um, that's where we are. So you're probably best known as, um, I would say, one of Australia's foremost experts in literacy and early literacy education. Um, so uh, one of the things I'm interested in, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but I'm a little bit sketchy. So maybe you can um, fill us all in and the, the listeners. Um, how did your interest in literacy develop? Um, I'm aware of a fairly seminal publication, 2013, with Kevin and Robin Weldall, while Jaden Cart reads, and a lot of people reference that. And I think you've spoken before about um, getting involved with your local primary school. So would you like to just tell us a little bit how, how you became interested in literacy and then how that developed to where you are today? Well, first of all, I really hesitate to describe myself um, or hear myself described as an expert in literacy. Um, well, you there are, are so Jen. many people. No, I, there's, I, I know quite a bit about, um, about literacy and about reading development, probably more than the average person. I've done a PhD, but one of the great pleasures of my job is I get to work with real experts who um, have been working in this field for decades and um, are incredible and um, their, their knowledge um, really uh, is beyond uh, anything that I could possibly match. I think where um, I would put myself is, uh, you know, as I said, I've done a PhD in um, reading instruction in particular, but I've also got um, a second set of um, skills and knowledge, and that's around policy and in research translation into policy. So, so how did your interest in literacy develop? It was because I was looking at lots of different policy areas um, and a lot of problems that were coming up or, or issues around education policy in particular, um, things like um, achievement levels. So I started working at the Centre for Independent Studies in 1999 and, of course, PISA started in 2000. So all of a sudden there's this enormous data set that... Um, hadn't been available before. There had been some international assessments through the IEA um, and there had been sort of smaller scale TIMS that had been around um, since the 1990s, but PISA really brought data into the public consciousness. And so um, I was fascinated by that and the country comparisons to some extent, although over successive um, cycles of PISA, the country comparison sort of became somewhat less interest in terms of the rankings anyway. Yeah. Um, it became apparent the rankings weren't as interesting as the movements of countries themselves. Yeah. Um, so that sort of really piqued my interest, but also I realised um, that a lot of the things that I was looking at tracked back to literacy, whether it was achievement in all domains really in um, secondary school, whether it was completion rates, behaviour, um, attendance, you know, so many things um, had their roots in whether or not a child learned to read early and well. 
Um, and you could predict a lot of that from, from those early years. So I, I started to look at those statistics and realise that um, there were lots of children that just, you know, weren't learning in those early years. And then, of course, being curious, I wondered why. And that led me down the path of, of looking at um, instruction in particular, because there are obviously there are socioeconomic factors and in my PhD I looked at that really carefully as well that there are things that are related to disadvantage that will make children more or less likely to learn to read easily but a lot of those factors can be ameliorated by really good instruction and I wondered why that <laughs> what I was reading in terms of research wasn't what was being put into policy and at that time when I first started looking at it policy was um, particularly a government policy and the guidelines that would were being given to teachers um, were very different to what I was seeing in research as being what was understood to be the best way to teach yeah. children to read. And so... Was it... Um, at that, um, that generated further interest. Yeah. At that time, um, was it, I, re I remember in the UK, uh, the, there was, prior to the Rose Report, the UK had something called the national strategies, national literacy strategy. And uh, one of the central planks of that was something called searchlights, which we would now call um, this idea of th three queuing or multiple queuing, where uh, to decode a word that you don't know, um, you could look at the um, GPCs, the graphene phoneme correspondences, or you could try and say, well, what word would make sense in this context? What, what's the, let's have a look at the pictures, that sort of stuff. And a big part of, I think it was 2006 Jim Rose published his review was um, to say, look, actually th these, these different strategies are not helping. This is what uh, struggling readers actually do. And we don't want to teach students to do children to do what struggling readers do. We want to teach them to do, um, to, to be able to decode. Did, was it a similar kind of trajectory in terms of Australian policy at the time? We didn't have, um, what was explicitly called the searchlights model. We had yeah. various other things that were being, that were more homegrown <laughs> versions. So the four resources model, um, which is a little different to searchlights because it really is, um, it's clearly more about uh, comprehension. Whereas yeah. searchlights, I think, like this idea of multi-queuing, um, was meant to be, I think, a model of comprehension. Yeah. not a model of word identification. Yeah. But there was this misapplication of this idea about um, of how you understand the meaning of something mm -hmm. using various different cues or resources yeah. um, versus how you get to what is the word that I'm looking at right now. Um, yeah. And so there are so many of these things in reading. These, um, one idea that is taken and... Um, you know, through a process of Chinese whispers or whatever it is, ends up being applied in the wrong way and takes on a life of its own and becomes an unstoppable force and just common wisdom. And then it's then the onus of proof becomes back on the <laughs> the, the person who's saying this this isn't true yeah. because everyone believes that this because how can it not be true if everybody has been taught this and this is the received wisdom? Um, so that that's a story that's really common. I don't. I mean, obviously, my area I'm most familiar with is reading, and I don't, it probably happens in other areas of education as well, but it happens all the time in reading, and there's, there's so much um, evidence of that. So we, um, prior to the Rose Report, we had the Rowe Report yeah. um, by Ken Rowe, 
um, the National Inquiry into the Teaching of Literacy. And it came up with the, the same recommendations essentially as Jim Rowe had. Um, he didn't, I think Rowe Report didn't go as far as being quite so precise about synthetic phonics. It talks about explicit systematic um, yeah. rather than synthetic in particular, um, which I can, I can see, you know, why they chose that wording, um, but that those words explicit and systematic can be interpreted in different ways by different people, yeah. whereas synthetic seems much simpler to define. I mean, of course, you know, there are people who choose to misinterpret synthetic in whatever ways they want to as well, which of course takes us down another path. But um, the, just the precision of that term um, was really helpful. And I think that's probably part of the reason that the Rose Report um, was implemented um, more successfully, I think, than the Rowe Report was here. Obviously, there are political okay. factors as well. Yeah. But I think that the fact that it was so clear, this is what we think teachers should be doing. Here's some examples of that. Um, that even though the intent of the, the Australian Row Report was clear to anyone who's reading it, it, it was too easily misinterpreted. And that was part of it. I mean, the, the this is the whole, government, there are other things happened as well. Yeah, this is the whole, we all do systematic phonics already. What are you telling us about? We already do. I remember someone explaining to me quite patiently once that um, you needed more than GPCs because the the letter the word wind could also be the word wind and and I remember thinking but this is this is strange yes obviously context helps you decide whether it's wind or wind but if you know your GPCs you you've narrowed it down to two options whereas if you don't it could be all sorts of different things so yeah, that, I mean that, that seems logical to you and me and yeah. to lots of other people but um there are even um other people who you know can't really kind of grasp that logic that um, decoding narrows down the options and leads you to a much more efficient and accurate um, reading than if you say okay well here's a four letter word it could be one of you know hundreds of four letter words <laughs> and that could possibly fit into this sentence even if you bring in your context cues yeah you know a sentence that has you know w-i-n-d in it there are lots of words that could potentially fit in there um so it, it just apart from the you know the research that we have that shows that you know that mapping of letter to sound is really important in efficient decoding um it's also just makes sense <laughs> that if you, you want think, to read quickly and fluently use the fastest method do you think that's maybe an issue in a way, um, this occurred to me that because you know how, um, so like the uh, National Panel um, 2001 report talks about uh, systematic phonics, and so does Rowe to a certain extent. And then uh, Rose uh, talks about synthetic, and a lot of people then start arguing and they say, well, actually, there's no great evidence for synthetic over analytic, um, and and really, this is there's not a huge amount of studies that have been done in that as far as I mean I don't know much about this but there's like there's a Clapman and Shear and there's that's about it really I mean I know that um, pa, um no Pam Snow <laughs> uh, Catherine Snow in her um report reading difficulties report sort of compares the two but there's not a huge amount on that do you think it's actually the logic this is what I was wondering Synthetic phonics to me is just really logical that that would make sense to break it down and build it up that way. And do you think the, 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 just the powerful logic 
of that maybe sometimes causes us people like me to um, overreach where the evidence is because it just seems to make so much sense is that a possibility um i think naturally if you're if you're someone who thinks in that rational way then um it might be but in this case there is more evidence than um you know just the direct comparisons of synthetic and analytic of which there's a handful yeah. studies that directly compare them um, but there are some other things as well that um, when you add them to those direct studies um, put much more weight on synthetic as being the the best thing that we know at the moment so yeah. things like studies looking at um, the um, the number of letter sound correspondences that you would need to learn in order to to read um, the the most high frequency syllables, for example. Yeah. So it, it's um and and that's a logical thing as well. You think okay, well you an efficient learning strategy is to be able to know the most things from learning the lowest or memorizing the the lowest number of things. So being yeah. able to memorize a few things and from that be able to generalize to a lot of things. Yeah. So that makes sense, and th there is research showing. That, that looking at that relationship, that um, you, that for there's something called the self-teaching hypothesis as well. That once children have learned a certain number of letter-sound correspondences, not um, learned a certain number of onsets and rhymes, yeah. but letter-sound correspondences, they can read an enormous number of words, and then they start to self-teach. Yeah, and they start to from there see the patterns in English orthography and learn those for themselves, and. We don't yet know, and this is one of the things that, um, that would be lovely to know, is at what point that self-teaching mechanism kicks yeah. in. And is it the same for every child? Um, what's the range of variability? Um, so right now, the wisest thing that we can do is teach the entire code yeah. to, to every child um, because we don't know for any child at which point they're going to achieve what Mike, Mark Seidenberg calls escape velocity, which I yeah. think is a really great expression. Yeah, and, it is. Um, so, and that's the concept. Um, and there's also, you know, there's computational models that have been shown to be really strong predictors of reading ability. And those computational models um, are based on the idea of learning graphing, phoneme correspondences, not on sets and rhymes. Yeah. And they are really good at predicting whether a child's going to read um, accurately yep. and fluently so and, and there is other things as well but the all together they build a really solid case for synthetic over analytic um, the other problem with analytic is that it's hard to define yes so we know what synthetic looks like um, there there are some really um, well-known and pretty largely well accepted definitions of what synthetic phonics means and how you teach in that way whereas analytic there are numerous different ways of thinking about analytic phonics. it can be done in a systematic way it can be done in a really ad hoc way so if you've got studies that are looking at synthetic and analytic um, you can be fairly sure you know what's going on in a synthetic classroom in that if, if it's just described as analytic yeah. you know there are numerous different possibilities for what's actually going on in the lessons i suppose so that makes it difficult as well i suppose i'm a little bit I'm a bit sensitive on this one because in, when I wrote uh, The Truth About Teaching, um, basically drawing on the Catherine Snow research, I came out and said, I reckon there's more evidence for synthetic than analytic. And then I had a very sympathetic review from, um, I think it was in 
it was a Nomanis, I think, actually. I don't know. But I had this very sympathetic review that uh, was very um, um, nice about the book, but then took took uh, issue with uh, me saying that there was more evidence for synthetic than analytic because of the whole, you know, RCT situation. I suppose we probably ought to, there might be some people listening to this who are thinking, what are they on about? What's, what's synthetic versus analytic <laughs> phonics? Um, so can I, sh- shall I have a go and then you can correct me? Because yeah, I don't, sure. so synthetic is you build the words up from the, um, the GPC. So you, you take the, and GPCs are not just individual letters and sound correspondences, they can be two letters, digraph, uh, that re- that is representing a particular sound. They can even be three letters, and then you 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 build the word up by sounding out the the individual GPCs and then blending them together. Whereas analytic, you never decompose the word. You have the whole word, but then you look at parts of the word and analyze. Hence the name analytic. What sounds they make? Uh, is that right? Is that roughly it? That that can be it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with analytic. Um, so synthetic. Yes, you've largely got that right. The the additional elements are that um, there's a scope and sequence that goes from simple yeah. to complex, um, that you introduce a certain number of um, GPCs at a time, um, and that the beginning ones are not just the simpler ones, but also the ones that have fewer possibilities for pronunciation, yeah. other things that people consider as whether or not it's a short or a long or a continuous sound or a stop sound. Yeah. Um, so Because it's easy if you're learning to blend, and that's the other part with synthetic, is that learning to blend the sounds together really early. Um, so you can get the concept of why they're learning these letter sounds and also how to co-articulate them to make a, a word. And um, so letters that, um, or, the, or phonemes that are continuous are easier to blend together than ones that stop. Um, so that's some of the other elements of synthetic. With analytic, you, could, you can also look at it as onset and rhyme. So word families, that's the other yeah. way. And that's the systematic way to say, we're going, these are, this is the, um, the family of words that end with A-M-E. Yeah. And so you learn um, game and came and tame and lame, frame shame, yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever, yeah. you, you know, goes on forever. But there are far more word families than yeah. there are grapheme phoneme correspondences. And, of course, you can learn the AIM words just by learning the grapheme correspondences that make up the AIM word family. So, and there are simpler ones than AIM, obviously. Um, so that, that's the thinking. You know, can, you can do anal- analytic in a systematic way, but it takes longer to go through all of them and, and make sure that children have got all of it because there is more likelihood that there's going to be gaps in what they can read um, mm. than if you teach the, the code, the grapheme phoneme correspondence code in a systematic way. Okay. Um, so um, just back to the sort of the policy side of things um, uh, now. Um, in uh, well, why Jaden can't read you, you and um, Kevin and Robin end up concluding that the, I'll just read it, the current entrenched rate of illiteracy amongst Australian children is unnecessary and avoidable. Poorly conceived government policies and university education faculties wedded to outdated and unproven teaching methods have contributed to this situation. Uh, And you talk about the billions of dollars that have been spent. Do you think that things have improved much since 2013 when, I think it was 2013 when you wrote that, is that right? Yes, yeah, it was. Um, I do. I do think things have changed. And sometimes it's really helpful to stop and do a little stock take of how much has changed since then. Um, So 
probably the most recent um, and significant change was the um, the amendment of accreditation standards for initial teacher education courses. Yeah. Uh, so that was um, the the consequence, I suppose, of of quite a lot of agitation by a lot of people over a period of time. Yeah. But um, that culminated then in a, a report that was published last year that that I wrote with Linda Meeks, um, which was based on the methodology that she had used for her PhD. Yeah. Um, but um, because of um, the, you know, the bit more freedom in terms of what we can publish as opposed to what journals can publish, yeah. we were able to um, to put much more information in the report. It was called Shortchanged. And we were able to list university by university um, a, a rough audit of the at least what was provided in the course outlines or the published course outlines of yeah. um, initial teacher education courses for literacy and uh, looked at whether or not they included the five keys to reading, which are accepted as being essential elements of early reading instruction, the simple view of reading, which is the most strongly uh, validated model of reading um, that we have to date, some um, whether or not they um, mentioned some very sort of um, well-known concepts that really should be in any literacy course and found that a very small minority of those courses mentioned those things. And of course, these are the published course outlines. There could be things in the curricula that obviously we couldn't see. Um, but we thought, you know, that the published court lines, course outlines are a pretty good indicator of what those um, course coordinators or writers of the programs think are important. Yes. They're going to be in the outline. Um, we also, as a, a way of, um, I guess, looking at some extra information was looked at the, um, the readings and the prescribed texts for those courses to see whether or not the textbooks that were being um, given to students reflected the reading research as well. And of course they didn't, they were probably worse than the course outlines, if anything. Yeah. So that's sort of an extra piece of information to back that up. But um, I have invited any university to provide me with a course outline <laughs> that contradicts what uh, Linda and I found in that report and I've yet to receive one. So for all of um, you know the objections to oh that was just the course line of co course outline. Of course we teach all these things. Um, no one has actually proven that. But this is it, isn't it? This is the issue. This is why I think that bit of research was actually quite marvellous. Because I'm I like I, I meet a lot of uh, graduate teachers. I, I interview a few for posts, um, and I talk to them through uh, Twitter, and uh, and some of them contact me through the blog. And almost universally. Um, the primary school teachers will complain about the uh, literacy instruction they've got. Usually by the time they've got to me, they've realised that, or, or they've decided that um, the, the, the systematic phonics or synth systematic synthetic phonics approach is, is good, is beneficial, is effective. And, um, and they, they'll, t they'll complain about the fact that they weren't taught about this uh, in their um, initial teacher education. The other things they'll complain about are, um, you know, they almost universally come out um, thinking that um, explicit teaching is bad and it's authoritarian and controlling and that we kids need to sort of uh, have uh, do inquiry learning so they can boost their critical thinking skills and they also think that um, classroom management issues can be cured by planning engaging lessons that will you know um, excite the kids and they'll, they'll just be and, and these are almost universals and 
Yet when you point this out, people say, well, you haven't got any substantive research to base it on. You don't know what's going on in the, in the, that might just be one teacher education course and blah, blah, blah. And a few years ago, um, I was, I was, I was ranting as I um, want to do from time to time about learning styles. And um, some, an academic uh, involved in teacher education challenged me and said, look, I don't know anyone, anyone involved in teacher education who still promotes learning styles. And I thought, right, that's it. I've had enough of this. So I actually went and I did a Google, you know, you can Google search websites. So particularly mm -hmm. learning yeah. styles. And I found examples of five or six or universities with education faculties, not just the university talking about how they deliver chemistry lectures or whatever, but the educational faculties current at that time, back 2016, promoting the concept yep. of learning styles which has been widely debunked so i'm a bit you know when people tell me oh you don't really know about teacher education i think we need i think we need that information um and i think it's actually um it's an argument for having better quality information as to what goes on in teacher education because certainly the impression you get is that the there isn't a great alignment with evidence um as i would understand it and maybe i'm wrong and maybe they've got better evidence or alternative evidence that, that they can draw upon but certainly the evidence as i'm aware of it doesn't seem to align very well so i thought that was a good bit of research the other one sorry i'm rambling a bit i'll stop in a sec <laughs> the, the other one that i like was um and this is another way of doing uh, essentially meeting the same ends uh, is the research pam snow and a few colleagues did where they surveyed knowledge of um graduate teachers but also practicing teachers on things like um, what's a graphene and mm. you know things like basic things that you, you really couldn't teach um, synthetic phonics without knowing and found that based a lot of a lot of teachers just didn't know that stuff so either it hadn't been taught or they hadn't learnt it. Yes, and it, well, if you listen to some. Um, ITE lecturers, they'll say, yes, we taught it, but no one ever comes to class. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. <laughs> they, they just didn't turn up to those lectures. And you think, well, wasn't there an exam or an assessment of some kind where you would have discovered that you know, they didn't know these things and probably they ought to. So there's really no hiding it, you know, that from either angle. We're looking at the, the input part of the, the content that's being taught and what... Um, what pre-service teachers know at the end of their degrees, then you, you know, and then you put them together and the gaps are pretty obvious. And in another criticism of that report was that, um, oh, you know, you should have contacted us to get the curriculum. There is absolutely no way that universities were going to provide their curriculum to me. I did try with a couple and um, I try and got the ex expected response. Um, the same thing with the prescribed texts. If they weren't available online, every university that didn't have their prescribed textbook published online, I contacted them directly and asked. Um, some told me. Um, others got extremely defensive and would not tell me. Um, and so it was a, that, that in itself was an interesting experience. But I do, I do think the, the, the lack of any contradictory evidence is the strongest thing um, supporting yeah. the report, despite, you know, numerous opportunities to present it is just not there. So that it was great that that actually made it to Education Council and is now, you know, become new policy. It's, it's, um, it's yet to actually find its way through 
through all education courses. And of course, there are lots of stages along the way in which it can be diluted and, you know, people will interpret it. And again, coming back to interpretations, that people will, will choose to apply it and interpret it in different ways. But it's closer to some sort of um, shift in IT than we seen for a long time and you know I think that anyone really expected so that you know that's one point I mean the phonic screening check is another one that's another indicator that uh, there are some changes afoot I think in a, a recent op-ed I described that as a bellwether <laughs> you yeah because kind of it's going great idea. guns in South Australia isn't it and then what's it something like a third of government primary schools in New South Wales have signed up for it well that's how many are actually participating in the trial yeah. more than that applied Oh. Um, yes. So I don't know the number that applied. I, I would love to know, but I don't know that, that at the moment. But yeah, so the fact that, it's, you know, there's a third uh, are taking part voluntarily um, is a really big indicator that they're interested in doing this. And that's got a lot to do with, I think, inf information finally reaching schools, the right information, despite a big misinformation campaign coming from some very high profile organisations. And, um, and also, I, you know, I've got to give some credit to the New South Wales Department. They've been doing some really good professional learning. Um, the documents that have been coming from the um, Centre for Education Statistics and Evaluation have been um, really strong. And so, yeah, they're very good, that, you know, all they? of yeah. those things have, yeah, have, have worked together, I think, to achieve what I think is a really good outcome. And the, the South Australian policy was really textbook stuff it was you know I couldn't have designed it better if I tried to have it as, as bipartisan policy and that's how you get something to stick is yeah. if you haven't got the political um argy-bargy over it um yeah. and then if that there that's a united front um and you've also then got the evidence through a really comprehensive and thorough trial like they did in South Australia it just took all of the um, the, the political heat out of it um, and just it, it, it's worked really well and it's only been a couple of years but there's already been a little bit of an improvement um, in terms of student performance on that check um, and we'll wait and see what happens this year. Um, it's I mean you'd expect there's, there's a group you participated um, was it last year in the phonics debate uh, was that no, last 2018. year? 2018. 20, gosh. Um, yeah. And there's a, the people, the, the, it was ostensibly a debate about um, systematic phonics versus phonics in context. But when I watched it, it looked to me like the phonics in context were people were arguing against phonics because they came up with, you know, the, old, the, the lines about how irregular English is and all that sort of stuff. You'd expect people in that camp, for instance, to be utterly furious, really, that the, these New South Wales schools have signed up for this check. But um, one thing, let, let's try and uh, get a more, a different perspective, like let's step back slightly. So um, last week, I, uh, for the CIS, I was involved in a discussion, panel discussion with Parsi Salberg, and that was moderated by Jordan Baker of the Sydney Morning Herald. And when I was doing my research, I obviously I read a few articles that Parsi had written. And I wouldn't say he is necessarily um, aligned with any one side of the re reading wars particularly. He doesn't strike me as, as, as that. But his criticism was that, um, that something like the, the, the phonics um, check is, is a quick fix 
um, and it's been marketed as a quick fix. And believing in quick fixes is a poor strategy because education is a much bigger, more complicated kind of a thing. Um, and it was it was a point that he'd, he'd actually he made in this article. He listed some other things. I can't remember what they were, but it, it was an. Ex What's the response to that kind of criticism of the of the phonics check? Well, of course, it's not a quick fix, <laughs> and I don't yeah. think anyone has <laughs> that I can think of has actually made that claim. It it's a missing piece of the puzzle. So we know assessment is important because it tells us what students know and what they don't know and therefore what we need to teach or reteach, you know, bring it right back down to, to um, basics. Um, and there are lots of other assessments being done in schools around Australia, and, but phonics was not a part of those assessments for the large part. Uh, and which is an indication that it wasn't being prioritised. So if you're, yeah. not, if you're not testing something, then it means that you're not really interested in whether or not students can do it or not. Um, you don't think it's important enough to test um, and then to look at that data. And so the, the UK phonics check, or well, it's really, it's, it's the UK government's phonics check, but it's actually only in English schools. Yeah. So hence the <coughs> confusion. Oh no, the, Scot the Scots um, would never borrow that. Named. No. <laughs> That wouldn't be up for that at all. Can you imagine a Welsh phonics check? Yeah. <laughs> That'd be a lot of fun. Um, so the, the UK government brought this in um, in 2012 in all English primary schools because they had had some success with making synthetic phonics mandatory in early years classrooms. And there had been an improvement in terms of reading outcomes, but it had plateaued. Uh, and there was a lot of concern that there had been some improvement in teaching, which had led to an improvement in outcomes, um, but that it wasn't as good as it could be. Yeah. And so they wanted to look at phonics, at decoding skills specifically. So this check was devised um, in with great uh, technical sophistication, actually. If you read the technical report, it's by no means just something that's been thrown together. Um, it's been thought through really thoroughly based on some solid evidence and, um, you know, really good people worked on it. Uh, and there was a trial and that showed that actually a lot of kids didn't know how to decode at the end of year one um, and so rolled out across all schools in 2012. And there was another improvement then um, as a result of having that check brought in. But of course, the check itself doesn't actually improve outcomes. It's the, you know, the data it provides and then the way that teachers respond to that and um, adjust their teaching. So that's what happened in the UK. We thought, well, why, why do create our own here? It's the same language yeah. <laughs> and you know, learning in the same way. They're, you know, essentially, this, well, they've got the same brains learning yeah. the same language. Why come up with a new assessment? It was tried and tested. The UK government is offering it essentially for free. So why would yeah. we do something else? So that, that was the, the thinking behind that. And again, no one's expecting that, that um, simply by doing the check, kids are suddenly going to be magically able to decode better. It's only if teachers use the information from that um, to adjust their, um, their teaching. And, and that seems to be what is happening in South Australia. Um, and there was quite a big um, push at the same time in professional learning. So it was a, you know, a dual strand policy that was the PL as well as the assessment um, it wasn't okay well here's the data now you work out what to do which is not um, which is a, a how it often goes in education 
yeah, yeah, it, it is. And it's not fair mm. because um, it's a sudden change with no, um, no support. And if we know, for example, um, that teachers aren't learning how to teach phonics particularly rigorously in their initial teacher education, and if they haven't had a lot of PL on it leading up to that point, it is unfair to say all of a sudden, well, you, you need to teach yourself how to do this now. Yeah. Um, so that's that's why the South Australian policy worked really well and, and New South Wales seems to be going down the same track. So, of course, the federal government's now also released its version, which is an online interface, which is actually really clever. <laughs> it's um, It works really well. It's got some really great functions that were even better than what we had in mind when, we, um, when I shared the federal government's advisory group, we had envisaged some sort of electronic version that would just make the scoring process easier for teachers yeah. instead of having to, you know, tick on a score sheet by hand and then data input, etc. Yeah. That if you could just score straight into a, um, you know, a program of some kind and then it would give you the report back, that would be much better. Well, this is even better than that. So well, it's great. Perhaps you can give it back free to the, the UK. Wouldn't that be a nice idea? <laughs> Um, <laughs> I'm sure Nick Gibb would be very pleased with that. Um, so the, the, obviously the phonics check, it, it works on one side of the simple view. I spoke to Dan Willingham about the simple view and I said, oh, what do you think of it? And he, he agreed it's very well validated. He did point out that there are some differences between written English and spoken English and he wasn't sure the simple view captured that. But um, uh, it is very well validated. I've, I was write, writing, I'm doing the literature review for my PhD thesis. Um, I'm rewriting that at the moment. And I talk a little bit about the simple view there in terms of um, evolutionary educational psychology. I'm going way off track here. But, but anyway, I had to look up um, some of the validating evidence of the simple view. And it, isn't, it is remarkably strong compared mm -hmm. to many other models that you see. But the, the phonics check works on half of that which is the word decoding. And then the other half, the language comprehension, um, it doesn't, it, it's not about that at all. But the two things are, the reading, according to the simple view, is the product of those two things. So uh, if you don't have the language comprehension, then you, the decoding still won't enable you to read and, and comprehend. So we need to, so it, I suppose it's not everything is what I'm trying to say. There's, got, there's an awful lot of other things that go into learning to be a, a sophisticated reader who can read academic texts and flourish high school and things like that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's um, why it's called Five from Five, the yeah. Five from Five Project, because it's not just about um, decoding, um, that there are all of those other things that go into being a, a skilled reader. And not, not just a skilled reader, but someone who enjoys reading. Yeah. So if, if reading is hard, then it's not going to be very enjoyable at all. So that there are those things, oral language, obviously language comprehension is, um, is very important and it's harder to teach well yeah. than the decoding part because it's, um, it's not as easy to define. Um, yeah. There are all these other things going on with reading comprehension. So as you say, the, the simple view of reading captured, captures something like between 90 and 96% of variation in reading comprehension um, so there are there, there are other things going on other than just your understanding of oral language because you know well Dan's right there are some um, specific things about written language and the more complex it gets then um, the more hard or the more difficult it is to actually define what the comprehension process involves um, but 
those two elements are also reciprocal. So once a child knows how to decode words, even if their oral vocabulary is relatively limited and reading becomes um, easier and more enjoyable, the more they're going to read. And yeah. so the more likely it is that they learn the sorts of vocabulary that they need in order to be able to, um, ha to have good reading comprehension um, and so on and so on. So it's, it's that process as well as the, um, the explicit teaching that's important. Just before we leave the phonics check, um, what kind of monster, Jen, like what kind of monster would get little kids to sit down and sound out meaningless nonsense words? Ah, what kind of <laughs> well, no, no kind of monster if you've ever seen a kid do the phonics check because <laughs> they actually love it. It's, it's quite funny, isn't it, that this projection from adults onto children of their own prejudices about things. So the idea that, um, that pseudo words or nonsense words are somehow rather traumatic um, is just ridiculous. I mean, you look at any children's book, um, you know, Dr. Seuss is full of nonsense words because he knew that they are fun. And particularly if you use nonsense words that fit orthographic patterns that rhyme and that children can start using the self-teaching hypothesis and sound things out, phonetic spellings and so on. So, um, you know, that idea is just crazy. And, you know, other than the fact that um, kids quite enjoy doing it, we know that it's a better, a purer way of knowing if children can actually decode that they are. Um, and that's because they can't the possibly wording. have memorised the words. Right. Because they've not yeah. come across them before yet. Yeah, so exactly. That, that's so the thinking behind it. Because you do yeah, see that a lot. People see, I've seen people argue, oh, the phonics check's fine, but you just need to get rid of the 20 nonsense words because there's no point decoding meaningless words. But they, I think they've missed the point slightly of what they're there for. And there's a whole bunch of other people who say, oh, it shouldn't have real words in it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you can see why um, the UK government decided to have both. Because yes. that way you're... You upsetting know, everybody that exactly <laughs> so you might as well do that um <laughs> so and, and it works really well Look, there, there are elements of it that i you know i think um particularly having alternative pronunciations that's something that needs to be really carefully implemented um and and in the past there have been occasionally words that you know the, the pronunciation might be seen as a bit um and so, you know, those are sorts of criticisms that definitely I take on board. But just because there was one word in one check in the past eight years that the pronunciation's a bit ambiguous, it's not a good enough reason to dismiss the whole venture. No, absolutely not. Um, oh, I've lost my thread for a second there. I had a really good question for you then, Jen, that I was going to follow up with. Um, hmm. Yes. Um, okay. Anyway. Oh, yeah, that's it. Was it uh, about? Was it? <laughs> no, I know was what it, it was. Was it about why, why, is, uh, why are teaching methods seen as ideological and political? Um, I was going to ask you about that, actually, Jen. But uh, the thing I was going to go in, well, we'll do that. We'll do that then. Why are our teaching methods seen as ideological <laughs> and political, Jen? <laughs> glad you asked. <laughs> well, th there's a few reasons. I've, I've been thinking about this quite a, a bit lately because th there have been, um, well, there's a new campaign um, that has sprung up 
uh, that's deliberately aimed at trying to um, counter the um, the science of reading movement. So there's this great movement at the moment, which is fabulous. People who are really, they've cottoned on to these scientific reading research and called it the science of reading. And they're very um, enthusiastic about it. And it is a growing kind of acceptance uh, and understanding. So there, there are a few organizations that have sprung up to try and counter this and saying, you know, reading's all about joy. Um, and that you, you know, I kind of start with meaning. And if you just you know, surround kids with the joy of reading and make it all fun and lovely, then they will learn to read and that's all you need to do. And we, we know that's not true. Um, but it's always been a political thing for some reason, going back for decades, um, that we can document fairly clearly, but hundreds of years really, that there's been this social and political element around literacy. And it's more around literacy than reading, and it's kind of bled over into reading and the conflation of those two terms. Because of course, literacy as a broader term is a social thing. Yeah. Because it's, you know, the, the, the things that you choose to read are often guided by the environment that you've grown up in and the sorts of influences that you've had. And then that's you know, the things you choose to read guide your own thinking and you can kind of see how it works. In terms of actually the, the skill of learning to read, that's not really a social political thing. That's about how you um, learn, you know, it's, it's a cognitive um, skill. It's not really a sociological issue. But I've, I've realised over time, um, and particularly more recently, that a lot of this is because um, the debate is being... Um, uh, engaged in by people who don't really know that cognitive science element. So they apply, they're applying what they know. So they're bringing the tools that they have to the debate. So if they don't understand the cognitive science aspect, and in some cases, not the, not even the linguistic and language aspect of, um, of English, if their background is in social and political analysis, um, or you know some sort of form of literature and all this, th those sorts of things, and that's the lens they're going to apply. Yeah. And so that's that's the debate they're going to have. So we can be having our our debate about scientific research and um, you know what what's the most efficient way for children to work out you know what what those black marks on the page are and mean, and but they are wanting to apply um, a social cultural class race analysis because that's what they know and sometimes it becomes really tortured and internally inconsistent because there isn't it doesn't make any sense because there isn't an analysis that you can apply to that that makes any sense so we're all going around in circles and i think that that's what happened in that phonics debate that you mentioned yeah so we had with the um opposing team we had negotiated that topic yeah so it like well in advance so we had decided together, you know, that the, you know, as a group, each team. Um, so there was no ambush or, you yeah. know, forcing this idea upon them. And so the fact that they then chose to, in essence, have a different conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it was like there was two different debates going on because they, they couldn't argue or engage on, um, on what we were talking about. And, and so they therefore just had to talk about what they knew about instead. And this is, there's this cross purposes kind of uh, conversation going on and it's really hard to find, you know, where is the, 
the common ground. And then outside of that, you've also got a lot of people who don't actually know anything about literacy at all, who just because they can read, feel quite happy to have strong opinions about it. it, it it's strange. I think what, one of the things that, that uh, people need to, to grasp is, is the difference between reading and oral uh, language. And that oral language has been around for hundreds of thousands of years. So it's no surprise that we can sort of pick it up, but we've evolved mechanisms for picking it up. Whereas uh, written language has been around about 5,000 years at the, at the max. And for most of that time, it's been the preserver of a few elites. So the idea that we, we could pick it up through immersion in the same way that we pick up oral language, um, it, it does, does seem a bit strange. I, I think in terms of the politics, I used to use, I used to be very puzzled and I'd say, well, talking about teaching methods and saying that this teaching method is right wing and that teaching method is left wing. It's a bit like saying in medicine that this drug regime, this particular treatment regime for this disease is a right wing treatment regime and this one is a left and it wouldn't make any sense. But recently we've almost seen that with the whole debate over mm. what, what was it? Hydroxychloroquine that became politicized. And really the key issue is whether it helps ameliorate the symptoms of COVID-19 or not and that's a purely empirical question you would assume that can be decided by experiments but you have people saying oh no Trump likes hydroxychloroquine so it's got to be bad or, uh, or and then people saying well if Trump likes hydroxychloroquine and I like guns and I I want to make America great again then I think hydroxychloroquine chloroquine which I can't even say now must be good so it does it, it's almost as if once politics gets associated with something like hydroxychloroquine or synthetic phonics it's really hard to unpack that i mean i know from my um, experience now for about eight years blogging and arguing about explicit teaching more generally um i can get published op-eds um not very frequently but uh, in what are considered center-right publications like i've been published in the australian and um spectator Quillette, and, shock horror. yeah but yeah Quillette <laughs> yes yes uh, far right adjacent or whatever it is <laughs> yeah. um uh, as if, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's really hard I, I've had one thing published in the age once um about exam results and I think um I, I they haven't asked me since um and, and it's really hard and I think it's because and my perception is it's because that even though politically I'm actually center-left centrist bushy middle type person um, because I've got I, I, my views are about explicit teaching and explicit instruction, that just goes in the right wing basket. So that's only only right wing people are interested in that. So that has to go over there. And it just does seem like an extraordinary um, way of it, it, it. Almost gets in the way of progress because we we, we have to then sign up to uh, positions not based on the evidence that there is to support those positions, but based on where where we think it sits with what we think about um, taxation or, or various mm. other issues. It does, and I wonder if there is a way through that. You said in South Australia, one of the, um, one of the good things about the way the, the phonics check was set up is it got bipartisan support. So as a policy person, how do, you, how do we go about building that? How do we go about getting rid of this, this perception that you know, technical things like teaching methods have a, a, a politics to them? Oh, I, I don't know that it's impossible to ever get rid of that element of it. You, you, can, um, you can find a way through it often. 
Um, and I, I think it's by just being persistent. Just be persistent. Keep going back to the evidence. Um, you know, build a, a coalition. Find people who are willing to step outside of, you know, what's considered to be their tribe um, and, you know, come um, advocate for things that, you know, might make them a little bit um, unpopular with what seemed to be their tribe because it is essentially very tribal. Everything's tribal now. Reading instruction seems to be particularly, but, um, but yeah, a lot of things, as you say, there, there seems to be this um, desire to put, well, if you are interested in this, you must therefore be interested in that because there can't be any overlap in these Venn diagrams. <laughs> we want everybody just to be in their separate camps and, uh, you know, not, not have any commonalities or not have any kind of... Um, yeah, free thinking even, <laughs> that it doesn't necessarily, you can't pigeonhole someone's views based on what they think about something else. So I, well, I really for, well, being in favour of being in favour of free, free thinking, of course, that is a classic far right adjacent dog whistle. <laughs> I know, I see this is another way in which I'm a monster, obviously, and, you know, free speech as well. Yeah, it's another classic far right adjacent dog whistle, whatever that is. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I... Just I think my, my strategy has been not to, to not be distracted by that. Okay. Just, you know, stick, stick with the evidence, keep producing the evidence, respond as necessary when things come along that, you know, look like they might seriously derail what you're trying to achieve, but not to put all the energy into that. The energy is, to, is, is in the positive. So, you know, the five from five website, sorry about, plugging that um, again, but it is um, very consciously a positive site. So um, it's not aimed at tearing anybody down. You know, there's no um, uh, highlighting of particular people or organisations or even, you know, tearing down a particular approach. It, it sometimes contrasts to approaches and, and takes a position. But it, it's presenting really useful practical, positive stuff. Um, and so that's what, you need. I think, is the best strategy is to keep pushing forward, providing the evidence um, and finding the people who want to work with you um, and building that, that coalition. And, you know, and, and again, it's the same thing with, um, you know, Multilix is quite a, a big target as well for, for whatever reason. I think, you know, victim of its own success to some extent. Yep. Um, because the, the programs are very effective and are in a lot of schools. Um, and so that makes multi-lit a target, which is just, um, you know, there's so many double standards that no, no one seems particularly bothered about the fact, you know, schools spend a lot of money on Apple products um, or that, you know, as you've pointed out in a blog that, you know, um, you know, libraries buy books, <laughs> you know, no one expects authors to provide their intellectual capital um, and publishers to sort of provide books for free all of the time, as, as lovely as that would be. It's completely unrealistic and just doesn't work. Um, so pencils, you know, no one expects a, a pencil is an essential element of part of schooling. No one expects, you know, there to be slave labour in a pencil factory so that everyone can have free pencils. Um, it just doesn't, you know, that, that's completely unrealistic. And so there's all of these things that, that schools need and that money needs to be spent on. Um, but reading programs in, seem to be singled out for some reason as being um, any sort of commercially produced program um, as being, um, 
don't know, some sort of uh, slight against teachers. When really, just like anything else, it's a resource that they I, can I use think, to make jobs easier and, and perhaps more effective. I think one of the things that, and, and I think Multilit's got this in its favour, and so is Five from Five, utility. I think part, part of the, what my um, objective is to, is to get teachers more in, in, at the centre of these discussions, because teachers um, have the same tendencies to ideology as everyone else and tribalism and all that, but they then have to go into work the next day and do something, and it has to work and it has to be practical. So when people come up with ideas uh, with the best of intentions in faculties of education, which are completely impractical, then teachers will see through that pretty much straight away, whatever uh, point on their ideological spectrum they are. And so when something comes along that has great utility, um, teachers will adopt that and go, well, it works. This works really well. And then that, that, that will make them quite resistant to ideological attacks. A good example is uh, cognitive load theory, which obviously yeah. you'd be aware that I, I'm involved in researching. And New South Wales um, CIS that you mentioned earlier put out a really good guide on that and then using it in practice. And what I found is that people have found it very useful. And then when, uh, as is the case, people have then come along to try and attack it and knock it down and say, well, I'm not sure that the evidence says whatever or, or I don't like it or the, the teachers are turning around and saying, well, actually, I find it very useful in my practice. And um, whatever the evidence says, now I'm using it, I'm seeing the benefits. Mm -hmm. So I think yeah. one other strategy, I suppose, is making sure that what we we come up with has utility. And I think that synthetic phonics, because the, the thing that I forgot about that I wanted to ask you earlier when I did the blank, uh, is about obfuscation around teaching methods. And uh, <clears throat> this term, I'm oh, sorry, this term balanced literacy. Because I think, as you alluded to earlier, the beauty of something like synthetic phonics is it's very clear what it is and what you have to do. And things like balanced literacy that people will put up as an alternative, it's not very clear what it is, and it's not very clear what, what you have to do. And therefore, in the terms of, in, in the stakes of how useful teachers can find those two things, um, the synthetic phonics has an advantage. Uh, and uh, I wonder if, you, if you've thought about that, and, and also what we can do about, so the big problem, as I see it, with balanced literacy, is a problem of obfuscation and the fact that Balanced literacy basically makes this claim that all the good things in literacy instruction are in balanced literacy. So you don't have to look elsewhere. It's all there. Um, mm. it we do teach phonics. We've always taught phonics. No one ever said otherwise. So how do we deal with, with uh, that issue um, in a sense? Like that, well, that, that sort of thing. You could argue with balanced literacy if you just take it at face value. Yeah. <laughs> it just seems like a, a straightforward concept that you would have the, the correct balance of elements um, in every lesson that would uh, you know, allow you to develop the various skills that children need to become proficient readers. So if you, if you just take it you know, at that level, yeah, sure. But in, in reality, it's, um, it's a, just a bit of this and a bit of that. It, there's no um, precision to it. And it's very much um, a matter of, you know, on a day-to-day um, -day basis, um, an ad hoc approach generally, rather than something that's planned and systematic. And, and we know that that's really important. If you want to really have something that's truly balanced, 
it has to be planned and systematic. And so again, we come back to the, sim the simple view of reading and those, you know, those five keys that, you know, a comprehensive reading program is going to have a balance of those things. And the balance will change over time. So it's not a matter of, you know, from foundation to year two, you do you know, 15 minutes of phonemic awareness, 15 minutes of phonics, 15 minutes of fluency, 15 vocoder, 15 comprehension, just in succession like that. Yeah. And if you listen to the naysayers, that's what they think that we're talking about. And of course, yeah. that's not the case. You know, we're talking about an integration of all of those elements um, in a way that's, sort of, that's coherent. So if in the very early stages of reading, there's going to be a focus on um, phonemic awareness and phonics, because that's the bit that, um, that children need to be able to grasp um, quite quickly. And if you can get children reading the code in those first couple of years, then everything else is gonna fall into place. But that doesn't mean you ignore everything else. They're all happen happening together, but the balance shifts. So uh, in the first two years of school, there's a code emphasis, but of course there's vocab, there's comprehension, there's storybook reading, there's all of that going on. Um, but if you can have the kids reading the code by the end of year one and year two, the balance shifts to much more around vocab comprehension um, and all those sorts of um, sort of secondary higher order skills so then by year three you're well into you know that that richer kind of um, literacy teaching because children are decoding fluently they uh, you know uh, tying it back into cognitive load they're no longer having to to think about what is this word they can yeah. see the word and um, and automatically recognize it which allows them to pay attention to comprehension now, you said uh, we know that it needs to be taught systematically, and this probably brings me to my final, my final question for you. Um, the reason we know, as I understand it, that, that it needs to be taught systematically, well, there's a logical argument, which we've, we've already addressed, but also uh, the uh, 2000 National Reading Panel Review published as AERI, I don't know if I don't know how to say that, and then various yeah, other then reviews, AERI. AERI, and then various other reviews since then. Um, have uh, concluded that systematic phonics is superior to um, the alternative, which is a little bit mushy. Um, and recently, uh, there was a paper published that, that took issue with this evidence base um, and said, no, actually, the evidence that it's better than, that systematic phonics is better than something called non-systematic phonics is yeah. not actually that strong. And then you uh, published a essentially a rebuttal to that rebuttal, I suppose, saying, no, actually, the evidence is, is, is as strong as we originally thought it was. Would you just like to take us through that in brief so people can get a, a, a basic understanding of what that was all about? Yes, so, so educational research is really difficult to do with real kids in real classrooms um, and all of the the things that can happen, all of those confounding factors that um, means it's whatever you're trying to research, you're not going to get a pure result. Um, and that's really to some extent how it should be because you're not dealing with children in a, a lab when you actually teach them. So when you're um, trying evaluating a program or a teaching method, it needs to work in real life, not just in, you know, uh, um, artificial conditions. But as a result of this, it means that the effect sizes, which is the measure of how much change you achieved in a particular outcome over a period of time compared to a um, comparison condition, they are hard to get 
it's really hard to get big effect sizes when you're working um, with real children in real life. Um, so there's a lot of back and forth about what constitutes a strong effect size. Um, and this paper that you referred to suggested the effect sizes for systematic phonics weren't particularly great. Um, and in some cases, they're not, but they're still better than the alternative. So <laughs> that's what it comes down to. Look, there are this range of effect sizes in systematic phonics, depending on the, um, the intervention itself and how well it was done, um, how many weeks, the intensity, the duration, fidelity, all those kinds of things. Um, but it's still better than the comparison condition. So with scientific research, and you've, you've got to go with what the best evidence you've got at the time. And when you're deciding you know, how to teach or deciding how to apply that sort of evidence into your practice. Um, it's, it's no point in creating a vacuum and saying, well, this evidence isn't you know, absolutely the best thing we could hope to achieve and therefore we're just going to ignore it. Well, no, it's, this is the best thing we have. And so you use the best thing you have until something better comes along. And so um, that was what I was arguing in that piece and saying that, that those effect sizes had been downplayed. Um, and actually more recently, there's been another um, paper published by um, Kraft who is making this point about the, the criteria we've traditionally applied to effect sizes and what constitutes yeah. small, medium, large. Um, and his argument is that those um, standards for small, medium, large were um, based on psychology lab experiments. Yeah. So the effect sizes are going to be much bigger than what you'd expect to achieve in um, a longitudinal, um, particularly longitudinal experimental um, uh, study in schools. And so he suggested uh, a, a different set of effect size categories, which are much more realistic and achievable. So, and I think he made a really persuasive case for that. So that's not just to sort of shift the goalposts and say, you know, all of a sudden, yes, they are large when you move the goalposts. It's still the case that they're better than the alternative, no matter what kind of criteria you apply in terms of a label of small, medium and large. And so that, that's the point that I was making. Some point something might come along that is some, you know, brand new approach to teaching reading that completely outshines all the others. Um, and yay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You've got every kid reading by the end of kindergarten with his brand new method, whatever it might be. That's wonderful. But at the moment, that doesn't exist. We have synthetic, systematic synthetic phonics and it meets, you know, the evidence criteria that we need right now. Yeah. And I think effect sizes are one of these things that people have tended to hang a bit too much on. Um, I, I'm... I, I'm now convinced that analyses like uh, Hattie's analysis, where you can rigorously rank everything in terms of effect sizes, well, it misses out on a few important questions. Like they, they change according to the age of the students, according to whether yeah. you're using standardized assessments or experimental designed assessments, what you're assessing, are you assessing reading ability or critical thinking skills? And so you, this idea that there's one measure um, that you can use universally, whatever the age of the student, whatever it is you're researching, and say, well, that's a large effect and that's a small one. I think we've started to move past that a little bit. And I think uh, Kraft's analysis, particularly for something like early reading instruction, probably makes a lot of sense. Also, Slavin's been writing about it and saying, you know, if you've got a really good quality randomized control trial, you're very unlikely to get an effect size of 0.4, which is actually Hattie's cutoff 
for something to work that's worth looking at. So um, I'm I'm inclined to towards that argument now, and I think the key thing that we need in the future is more direct comparisons. So you can see in in this experiment which condition um, outperformed the other one, um, and because then it doesn't really matter what the effect size is as such. You as you say, you know, well at least we know that this seems to be better than that. Yeah, right. And I think with John Hattie's um, work, it's been beneficial largely because it drew attention to quantifying outcomes yeah. and looking at the evidence. And so, you know, I, th I think there are other people who share your concerns about, you know, you, you having to look beneath that headline number yeah. to, um, to actually get a better sense of, you know, it's a bit of a cliche now, but, you know, for whom under what circumstances, you know, et cetera, yep. those sorts of qualifiers. Um, but I do think that, that that visible learning really did just um, put the focus back onto, you know, the evidence and, and, and the quality of studies um, that were being looked at, more so than it had been before. It was a bit of a, a turning point. And, yep. um, and, and now it's a matter of, you know, teasing all those bits out to to find out what's what's beneath that headline number one thing that um evidence for learning has done which is similar to the eff um and eef rather and look again you can criticize their their methods and and you have and i have and um will continue to do but i think one thing that they did at least um evidence for learning which is useful is the the security rating yeah on the findings and that's often ignored so people will just go straight to the you know, the effect size or the months of learning that they, yeah. they say, but don't look at the security of the, the finding. And that's sort of that extra element. And I do think people are coming, becoming gradually more research literate. Um, oh, Hattie's, it, it, Hattie's uh, visible learning was the, the start of it for me. So yeah. although I'm, I'm a little bit critical now, um, you know, that's me with the benefit of lots of hindsight. And, you know, I, I think it was a seminal work. And it got me, it got me reading Kirshner Sweller Clark. And that's where I found it from a reference in Hattie. So I think it was right. a very important book in uh, for a lot of people, for a lot of teachers, certainly. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I, I don't know that um, he ever intended for it to be used in a lot of the ways that it has been. No. It's like, you know, again, we've right back at the beginning that sometimes things take on a life of their own. Um, and once they do, then the original author kind of loses control of the way that it's used um, largely and um, but you know that that's just um, the way that educational research works you just got to kind of hope that it um, that all leads to the greater good eventually well I'm sure we'll get there in the end look Jen it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you you are extremely knowledgeable and uh, and interesting fascinating to talk to um, and hopefully at some point in the future maybe if you feel inclined um, to come back, that might be a good thing because I, I think we've only just scratched the surface of what we could talk about. But um, thank you very much, Jen. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me. I'd love to come back sometime. Brilliant. Cheers. Cheers.